came a long way. That's what the song say. And I could do all things. I could do all things. Yeah, I could do all things. Yeah, yeah, we came a long way. Hey, what's up? What's going on? And welcome to the Be Real Podcast, where we keep it real on social issues, history, news, faith, and everything in between. It's your one-stop podcast with thought-provoking talk and real content. Now, it's time to get real with your host, Brandon Mosley. What's up, y'all? You already know I'm going to tell you. Swag it out. Swag it out for one more moment. Yeah, yeah. That's what the songs say. I could do all things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you guys are enjoying my intro music. Uh, you can do all things. I truly believe that. But before we get into anything, I just want to say thank you for all those who have listened to the first episode. And if you haven't listened to the first episode, stop right where you are and go to the first one and go ahead and listen to the uh, 4th of July. And with that being said, also, if you notice on my anchor page, you can actually send me voicemails. So if you want to send any words of encouragement or you want to let me know what you thought about the show or even if you want to maybe request a subject, please do so. I would really appreciate it. And if you haven't followed yet the Facebook or the Instagram page, all under Be Real Podcast, please do so. Look us up, add it, like it. I appreciate you. And also, also, last thing, on the podcast, if you listen to the podcast on Apple, please, please, please rate it. Give me a five-star, please, and go ahead and write a really kind review. I would really appreciate it. But let's talk about what we're going into today. Today, I want to talk about the Myth Busters. Uh, Not the actual show, but the idea of black-on-black crime. We're going to see if we can figure out if this myth is real or if it needs to be busted. So here's the deal. Black-on-black crime is simply defined as what it sounds like. Any crime perpetrated by and to um, of African American in these black communities. For some reason, we look at it and think there's alarming rates of black on black crime, and that's the major issue in black communities. So it's a problem that we keep seeing. So let's try to address it. Before we get into it, I want to listen to a clip from our president's press secretary that came out recently. Take a listen. Obama administration who is making that point, but one point he wants to strongly make is this, uh, that black men and women who die of homicide, they are likely to die of homicide at eight times greater uh, than that of white individuals and Hispanics combined. Uh, that That's the rate combined. So that's an extraordinary thing that we want to look at. I've listed for you the names of these kids who have died across this country. It is unacceptable. And under this president, he'll take action. And the derelict mayor of Chicago should step up and ask for federal help because she's doing a very poor job at securing her streets. So she said that after someone asked about Trump response on um, police brutality and black people being killed by police and his response was, well, white people get killed by cops all the time. And instead of answering the question, she automatically goes to Chicago and the children and other cities that were killed over the weekend, which is very sad. But Instead of answering the question about police brutality, she went into that. That's code language for black on black crime. And what I've noticed every time I post anything, um, any of the speeches I've done, 
and it goes out to different locations and different places in the United States, I always get a bunch of people underneath there saying, well, what about the black crime? What about the violence? You guys have to deal with the violence in, that you, you have. What about this? What about all the murders? Have you thought about that? Right? So I am keep getting that, but when we mention police brutality, but what about this? It's almost like they're saying, well, if you kill each other, why can't you get killed by the cops? Um, maybe because a cop is supposed to be trained and maybe because they're supposed to protect and serve or just maybe because black people are three times as likely to be killed by the police. I don't know. Right. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Those myth, myth, uh, myths that we hear about black on black crime to figure out if it's real or if it's just that a myth. But before we get into that, I want to tell you a story about myth busters, the show. So when I was in college, um, I had a roommate that was an introvert and he was, man, when I say introvert, I mean, he literally wouldn't say anything to anyone. And, and if you know me, some of you guys may, I'm really into like trying to build a relationship and get to know people. And I'm in college and even though we, we, we may not be, how can I say, exactly the same type of person because I'm far from being an introvert, but I try to bond with him and the way I try to bond with him was through Mythbusters because this roommate was in my mind the perfect roommate because A, he left every Thursday night and wouldn't come back until like Tuesday morning. He kept the closet pretty much for me to have and I, I had a lot of clothes and I, and I still do um, so I, I needed the closet space so he only had two green polos, a pair of jeans and a pair of boots. So I'm like, man, this is perfect. He's never here. He's super quiet. And he's clean. So this is perfect. So every time I would see him, he will be in the living area, living room area, watching TV. And it doesn't matter what time of day it was, if it was 12 o'clock at night or 9 o'clock in the morning. I don't know how bro was finding the Mythbusters on. Like it was like a marathon all the time just for him. And this is before Netflix, so I don't know how bro was finding the show, but he was finding this show. And he used to come up with like these weird facts, like, you know, you know, you you actually don't burn more gas when you when you run the air conditioner. I said, okay, bro, that's cool, right? And then I'm like, where's he getting this weird stuff from? Then I start watching the show with him. I'm like, oh man, and I start spitting out these little weird facts and stuff like that. So this show is dedicated to my former roommate in college. Uh, this is back, back, back in the day that we were talking about 06. So dedicated to him. Um, and we're going to get in this myth busting and, and the subjects we're going to look at, the areas we're going to look at, we're going to look at the history, right? We're going to look at the reality or the why, the effects of black on black crime and what can be done. So those are the areas we're going to be looking at today. So let's look at the history and the origin of black on black crime. So the term actually was coined in 1968 by African-Americans, but the idea of black on black crime actually originates in the late 1800s because scientists started to manipulate data around arrest and imprisonment of blacks to equate that blackness was actually criminality. So what they were doing was they were trying to create a fear in the North because a lot of African-Americans was fleeing the South to go North because of course Jim Crow so this idea and this fear started to create the narrative that African-Americans 
was inherently evil or inherently dangerous, right? And this is something that was used in continually in film, music, media for years, right? You see the birth of a nation used that as well, right? The idea that African-Americans just want to rape, kill, steal, and this is who they are because of their DNA. So that type of fear of this dangerous hoodlum or this super predator predator that we've heard in the 90s uh, from Hillary Clinton, that idea started to create a great white flight. So white people started to move to the suburbs, right? And by 1970, historically white cities like Compton, Detroit, Chicago, D.C., places like that became overwhelmingly black, right? So we start to see in the early 1970s, this phrase started to like garnish more recognition. So back in like the early 1970s, there's like a bunch of different articles that started to come out, like the Chicago Daily Defender, which was an African-American uh, newspaper historically, Chicago Tribune, which is, you know, a mainstream newspaper and also Ebony, right? We all know Ebony, African-Americans, we all know Ebony, it's a black magazine. So they started to focus on black on black crime and what actually it is. So Jesse Jackson was actually quoted in the Defender article rebuking white government officials and white media. He says this, their silence and ineffectiveness in dealing with the present black on black crisis is a problem. So he's talking about black on black crime. Jackson and the black community literally started to complain about how blacks were receiving more time in jail for killing a white person, but they were getting off a lot easier for killing African-Americans. So they started to create a narrative that we need how can I say higher sentencing and we need them to be in jail. We need more protection. Right. And because of that narrative, a, a judge in, in Chicago, Judge Epton, decided to give two black teens 100 to 150 years in jail. One killed a white person, one killed a black person. So he he showed that as that's fair sentencing, me giving them 100 to 150 years for both murder. Murder is murder. Right. That's the idea that was starting to happen. And when I looked at the Ebony article, what can be done, I, I noticed that they were demanding uh, that black communities rise up and start holding drug dealers, gang members and all criminals um, accountable. Right. And they were asking for police protection. And, and second thing they asked for, not just police protection, they asked for improved social conditions to stop the breeding of criminals. So they're saying the social issues are creating these criminals and we got to hold them accountable. It's our job. We're going to stand up and fight against them. Right. And I started to look more and more in these different articles. I noticed in the early 1980s, the Chicago Tribune started to run all these series of articles that started to frame the issue as urban violence, squarely the problem of black youths. So that's where the idea of super predators really started to be born, right? That's where it started. And the Chicago Tribune that started to frame to white society that young black men are dangerous and scary, right? Then the more I started to look, and I, I, I remember a book that, that became popular in the early 90s and became popular again in 2016 around the same time Trump was running and winning 
the presidency, and the book is The Bell Curve. And The Bell Curve is written by Charles Murray, right, and Richard Henstein. And this book became a bestseller, right? And this book tries to prove the theory of IQ and DNA and subscribes to the idea of eugenics, right? What Nazi Germany tried to make famous, to try to make the perfect human. And what they were saying was that IQ was hereditary and is passed down. And normally people with darker skin are the dumbest, right? And not only that they're the dumbest, is that they're also most likely to find themselves in crime, being dangerous, being more violent because they have low IQ, right? And they subscribe to the idea of building the building walls, stopping immigration, um, pretty much making it difficult for those people to have more children, and the list goes on, right? And this book is written by these two guys about science, and neither of them are scientists. And all of their claims have been disproven through true scientists that IQ is not a DNA thing at all, right? And it's not based off the, your skin complexion because your skin complexion is not even based off DNA either, right? Race is a social construct. So all that's been disproven. But the book became popular again in 2016. These guys started to be on all these news channels and, and all these different radio shows. I even heard one of them on NPR, right? And the book is still for sale in every major bookstore, including Amazon, right? So the idea of the supreme racist idea that comes from Nazi Germany is still being pro propagated today. Now we know the so-called scientific history of black on black crime, starting way back in the late 1800s to really today, right? So kind of scary when you think about it, but let's get to the reality of black on black crime. Let, let, let's try to figure this thing out. So reality is people commit crime against those they live next to. Right. It's all about proximity. Right. You, you commit crime next to your neighbors. Right. And here's the deal. A vast majority of black people, guess what? Live next to black people. Right. That's that's what happens. And looking at the FBI crime report from 2016, 90% of black people murdered by blacks, right? But here's the deal. 85% of white people were also murdered by, guess what? White people. That's virtually the same. Do we have a white on white crime problem or, or no? I, I'm trying to figure that out. So then I kept looking and I found out that most murders involving a single offender are committed by white people. Oh, why don't white crime might be a problem out there? Y'all don't know. Then I, I, I kept looking and I found the CDC notes that rates of homicide, guns killing, and illicit drug fatalities are highest in counties where nine out of 10 residents are white and were Trump supporters. Ugh. Uh-oh. Then I looked at another thing, last little point. Less than 1% of blacks commit violent crimes on any given year. And that's the DOJ, y'all. So these are some real facts. So I don't know if you guys remember that article I talked about 
from the Chicago Defender from it was from 1970, December 1970 to be exact. In that article, the, the writer wanted to do this article because he was asked to go to some type of summit about black on black crime. He started to do investigating um, work. Right. And he talked to someone by the name of and this is real. This is this is the name they put down. Fast Willie. I don't know why they call him Fast Willie. I don't know if Fast Willie is his name because he runs fast or because he might be quick to beat you up or he might be a fast talker. But his name is Fast Willie. Uh, you know, and I'm going to tell you what Fast Willie says. He, he does use the N word. So I apologize. But I'm going to try to sound, you know, you know, like Fast Willie could have sound. I don't know. He says this when he asks, like, why do you commit crime against, you know, other black people? Fast Willie says this. We go where the business is and where the man ain't looking. Can you see me going up to Deerfield, black as I am, trying to stick up? The man would be on me so fast, I couldn't get a chewing gum wrapper. Out here, the man is too busy whooping on them Panthers and giving tickets to mess with me. Anyway, he don't care if niggas get ripped off, but you can bet he's watching his thing back in his own hood. I can tell you this. Faz really is the truth. Fast Willie, if you're still alive, I would love to talk to you. So understand, Fast Willie's just said a whole lot here. And the crust of it, he's saying pretty much that that at the end of the day, police officers don't really care about black communities. And not that they don't care about black communities, that black communities are in a very strange place. And a strange place is being under police and over police at the same time. And what I mean by that is literally that you can walk to the corner store and get stopped 10 times for stop and frisk. It's the same idea that Trump said when they when they asked him what to do with black on black crime. He said, do more stop and stops and more frisking, frisking because it works. Right. No, it doesn't. Right. That's harassment. That's racial profiling. Right. But that's what they were seeing in Chicago in 1970. And that's what we see in black communities still today. But in the same token, under police, in terms of when you need the police, they don't show up. It's just like what Tupac said back in the day when he said that we are just afraid as anyone else. But the difference is we're living right next door to the killer or right next door to the person who just committed the crime. And we need the police, too. But the police is not there when we need them. They only show up, obviously, when you walk in the streets. Right. So to have the police in every single corner. But when you call them, they don't show up. It's crazy. So I want you guys to listen to this piece from one of my favorite shows from Martin. It is hilarious, but it's so real. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> All right, well, look here. This is Thurston O'Reilly III. Yeah. Boy, I got to tell you, what a sad day. Honey, would you bring me a martini, will you? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> listen, I wish to report the death of one of my employees, yes, on East 23rd Street. Oh, no, I'm a white man. I can tell you the truth. I am a white man. <laughs> Nothing makes my day more bright than waking up white, I got to tell you. <laughs> well, I mean, I can prove it. Ask me anything. Okay, fine. They want to know what America's favorite pie is. Oh, sweet potato, sweet potato pie. pie. Sweet potato no, no, pie. no, bing pie. Go with bing pie. No, bing pie. No. no, it's apple pie. Baby, say apple pie. Good Good ass. Good ass. Good ass. We're gonna go with apple pie. Got it. Yeah, 
Okay. Name two Barry Manilow songs. <laughs> Copacabana and Mandy. Copacabana and Mandy? Bring it on! All right. All right, um, all right. What do you put on a sandwich? Hot sauce. Yeah! Yeah! And, and some barbecue sauce if it's a hot links. H hello? <laughs> Great call. Now, what do we do now? All right, I know that was a bit of satire. It was hilarious, but... Let, let's unpack it real quick. In reality, looking at some reports, and we're talking about Chicago because the press secretary brought Chicago, Chicago into this. So in Chicago, in the South Side or other black communities, on average, when someone dials 911 and they need police assistance, it takes the police on average 11 minutes. Okay. In places like Deerfield, which is majority white, or Jefferson Park, it takes two and a half minutes for the police to answer a call in a white neighborhood. It's pretty clear as day that you are, how can I say, your life matters more when you're white if you call 911. But if you're black and call 911, your black life doesn't matter. So understand this is a real issue. So looking at back at like the Ebony article that I spoke about earlier, remember they, they were talking about the need of social change, right? In terms of more support. And you look at even today with the Black Lives Matter movement, they're asking for, uh, we a lot of people are calling defunded, but I will call it divest and reinvest, right? Or reallocate the funds to different community needs, right? And it's the same idea that those people are asking for in that Ebony article that they need support. They need help. So the question is, why would these people ask for social help, right? We're talking about, you know, opportunities, jobs, parks, education, Med medical, the list goes on, right? So why are they asking for this? So here's the deal. Income below the federal poverty threshold, people who live in those households, are two times likely to commit a violent crime than people who come from higher income households, right? Regardless of race. So another thing is poor urban whites, this goes back to the idea of only black on black crime, right? They have a higher rate of violence towards each other at a rate of nearly 57% per thousand people, right? Compared to black urban poor, 51%, right? So it lets you know that poverty has a great deal to do with crime. So here's the deal. But the poverty rate in African-American communities is twice as high than in white communities. So right then and there, we see that blacks are more likely to live in poverty. And because they're more likely to live in poverty, they're more likely to guess what? Commit a crime. So 
where does all this pretty much come from, right? So you look at 400 years of systemic racism that has actually caused and stemmed first from slavery. Then you got Reconstruction that was, oh, you understand with Reconstruction, literally, if you didn't have a home vacancy, you were arrested, then pretty much sold to the highest bidder to work, or you had to sign on to a contract with your former slave owner. So Reconstruction didn't really end very well for blacks. On top of what in Reconstruction, you have the Jim Crow era, right? You have redlining, the idea of preventing African-Americans to build wealth by purchasing homes. Banks were also into in it, and the federal government was in it, too, because the GI Bill. That's another story. And you have the, just a total disenfranchisement of African-Americans completely. With that, you, you have a lack of economic opportunities, so no jobs. So you pretty much live in a job desert, right? You have over-policing. You have white flight that's happened. And you have poor education because the funding of education for many of years came from, guess what? Housing, property, taxes, right? So you got all those things happening, including no parks in the community, including no good place to buy fresh food. So you got all these things happening. So, of course, if you don't have any opportunities or no chances, what do you do? What are you left with, right? So... That's the psyche. That's that's where we're at. And we always talk about why these people riot and why these things happen. We have to understand that if you have a job, you have income, you have opportunities, you won't need to A, commit crime or B, be a part of the riot. You would have nothing to riot about because you have everything you need. Right. So. So I read a really interesting article that talks about some of the stuff I spoke on. And one of the examples, the uh the writer came up with was the Frankenstein monster. We've all seen it. It's It's been around for generations and continue to be readapted, right? And no one gets tired of it, I guess. But throughout that time frame, some things were forgotten. We all think the monster was Frankenstein, right? That was the name of the monster. But in reality, the name of the doctor was actually Dr. Frankenstein that supposedly created the monster, so the real question is who really was a monster, the thing that was created or the person who created it? And I would say the person who created it. So what created this problem is systemic racism, is this system that America built. So that's the real monster, not young black teens, not black people. They're not inherently bad. No, it's a system that's bad, right? And within that system, blacks have been trapped in projects, secluded and cut off from the rest of the world. Right. Cut off from opportunities, cut off from resources. So that's where you see this so-called black on black crime occur. But some people still say, well, Brandon, what about this self-hate that we see in the black community? What, what about the lack of support that they have from one another? Why can't we build black businesses and all these other things? Well, I got something for you, too. So take a listen to this real quick. This is Dr. Joy DeGruy, and she wrote an amazing book entitled Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And I'm going to let her talk about it real quick, then I'm going to come back with you. I started to see common behaviors that I took for granted as, well, cultural. There's adaptive behaviors, survival behaviors. Well, what are they? Let's just say 2019, you have 
a black mother and a white mother. The sons go to school together. They find themselves at a meeting. The black mother leans over to the white mother and says, I just wanted to mention to you that I noticed that your son is really doing quite well. And the white mother's response is, oh, thank you. She begins to go on and on about, he won the science fair, his uncle's an astronaut. She's just oozing. She realizes the black mother's son is actually excelling her son. And she says, well, wait a minute. Your son's the one that's really coming along. And the black mother responds, oh my God, he's a handful, but oh, he just works my nerves. Now, when I'm working with African-American people, it doesn't matter what the audience is. It doesn't matter what class. If I were to ask, is she very proud while she's saying those denigrating things? And everybody laughs and goes, of course, there's a secret. Because everybody black knows that even though the black mother is going, oh my God, she's really proud. So now let's roll that scene back 300 years. And let's say this black mother is working in the fields and a white slave owner comes through and says, wow, that boy is really coming along. What is she gonna say? No, he's not, he's, he's stupid, he's, he's shiftless, he can't work, because I don't want you to sell him. So I denigrate them to protect them. That is called appropriate adaptation when living in a hostile environment. The little white boy, say Timmy, you know, he feels really comfortable and happy about what his mom just said about him. And Trey looks at his mom and wonders, why can't you be proud of me? Because he doesn't understand the secret yet. And by the time he learns the secret, he will have already been injured by it. Post-traumatic slave syndrome. Wow, right? So in her book, she discussed the idea of multi-generational trauma that's passed down through adaptive behavior and passed down by being forever in a state of not thriving, but simply trying to survive, right? And she says that this creates some type of hopelessness, depression, and general self-destructive outlook that literally you don't anticipate anything good, things is difficult, and you always see things being difficult. Your mom was in the projects, you expect to be in the projects. They didn't get past whatever grade level they expect the same out of you, right? You, to a point where we used to joke in movies and in music for years that you're lucky if you're black and you see black man and you see the age of 21, right? So this is that that trauma she talks about. And this creates like a self-hate or anger or violence, right? And it also creates extreme stress that she says not that is not good for your immune system, I wonder why COVID-19 is hitting us so hard, right? So think about that and, and realize that this is a generational thing that's been passed down, right? And so you say, oh, so we don't care for each other. We don't this, that, whatever it may be. It's it's learned behavior, right? And that's something I've seen in, in my life, right? And I've, I've talked to others and they've seen it as well that their mother or father wouldn't be so glaring about their success would be more planted down, almost like they don't want them to get too high where they end up failing anyways, because with being black, you have a higher chance of failure. So it's it's a reality that we live through. And Dr. Joy DeGru, what she said is really vital, but she said something else that's really important. She says, of course, we need mental health counseling and things of that nature. But she said the biggest way or the best way to, to fix this is resources, right? 
providing resources to make sure you, you have job opportunities, better education, right? That you stop with all these different things that are affecting the black community. So in terms of effect, one of our last talking points. So the effect of black on black crime, it literally allowed the justification for redlining, right? The fear of blacks living in your neighborhood, that they are dangerous people, right? So with them being dangerous people, it created a concentration of black poverty, right? The idea of not being able to use that GI Bill and buy a home that will build wealth over time. And in 20 years, 25 years, you can take money out or sell it and do something with it and build a business, right? So with that being in mind, it also allowed blaming blacks for their situation that we never get to the real root of the the issue that I, I like to say the idea of the spider, like we, we knock down the spider webs, but we never get to the spider itself. Right. And that's what black on black crime really does. It, it, it's a forever red herring that will cause people to look another way that, you know, forget about what's really what really needs to be fixed, like resources. Let's just provide more police officers in the community. Let's also spend more money instead in of resources, let's spend more money on the war on drugs. Yeah, that'll fix it. Oh, let's put them in jail longer. That will fix it. Uh, let's create the crime bill of 94. That will fix it, right? So it's misguided, um, how can I say, misguided solutions that obviously doesn't work. And and they were using the idea, the guise of black-on-black crime and African-Americans saying, we want more support, more help. They took the more support and more help and said, well, here's these new crime. Here's this new crime bill and this war on drugs. And we're going to put all the bad people in jail. We're not going to. That's how we're going to fix your community. Right. And because of that, you create over policing. And of course, police brutality is going to happen. Right. When you have over policing and them coming in thinking this is like a dangerous place because of blacks are inherently. So for some reason, more violent and more prone for to commit crimes. So that's what this myth of black on black crimes created, that when black lives matter screams black lives matter, people will say, well, does it matter on black on black crime? Of course, black lives matter all the time. But you using that is clearly a red herring for us not to deal with what the subject is in front of us. And also, why is this black on black crime? That's that's not even I don't get it, because if we have black on black crime, then after all the statistics you just heard, should we also call white on white crime, brown on brown crime? It's the same thing, right? So you may be asking, like, what can we do then? And there's no simple fix, right? There's a lot that needs to be done that should have been done during Reconstruction after the war, right? This is a a problem from the 1860s, right? A problem from 1619, right? This should have been fixed hundreds of years ago, right? So what we need to do is spend more money in these communities providing that education, providing job opportunities, providing business grants, providing police reform, prison reform, right? More resources, right? Better housing, so not a handout, a hand up. So this is important that these things occur and happen because those are like the crust of what's stopping us. When I say us black people, 
from obtaining wealth and also having just a decent life, the so-called American dream that was kept from black people just simply because of being black. All right, guys, welcome to the Be Inspired moment for the week. And I want to say this to you. This is a quote from Dr. King. No person has the right to reign on your dreams. And I want to leave you with this idea that don't allow others doubt in you and your dream become yours. Know that you can do anything you put your mind to. So don't mind people not supporting you. Don't mind people trying to discourage you. And don't believe in their disbelief in you. So I will highly suggest to understand your dream belongs to you. So it's time for you to own that dream and turn that dream into reality and watch the doubters in your life become your biggest fans. So please dream on and believe on. I just want to leave you with a couple closing remarks. I think um, black on black crime truly it's a myth. It's a myth that's been busted. And that myth has done more damage to black communities than we can ever even think of. Um, it's been a part of the daily conversation, even from presidents using it, from people of color using it. Um, it became a part of vernacular, like it's a real thing. And it's been the biggest red herring or distraction in fixing the real problem. So I would truly say maybe it's time for us to stop looking at the word black on black crime and start looking at what causes crime to begin with. Blacks aren't inherently bad. They're not super predators. They're just like everyone else. Just needs opportunities, a chance, and need to find the best way to prevent crime. And the best way to prevent crime is providing opportunities, ensuring that these communities have a chance to prosper and grow. Education, right? Food, jobs. So if you don't want to see crime or riots, you need those things. And I, I think it's really important for us to now no longer um, think of the black community as a inherently violent place, but understand that a lot of these black communities are at the very bottom of the mass low hierarchy. The idea of just trying to make it every day, find shelter, find food. And it's time for the black community as a whole to be given opportunity to get to the top of that mass low hierarchy and self-actualization. And that doesn't happen overnight, but that can definitely happen. And we have to understand that crime or the black community within itself can't be fixed by just self-accountability because that self-accountability doesn't create resources nor opportunities. I think it's time to replace the, the term black on black crime to maybe with disenfranchised on disenfranchised crime or how about this? Here's a better one. Just crime. 
And I can do all things. I can do all things. I can do all things. Yeah, yeah. I'm not afraid of the moment. I'm not afraid. I can't hold it. I gotta show them. Gotta get up in the morning. I gotta do it for Kobe. Lately, I'm zoning.